Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Welcome to Mamma Mia Out Loud, what women are talking about on Wednesday the 9th of November. I'm Holly Wainwright. I'm Mia Friedman. And I'm Jessie Stevens. And vote for us in the listener's choice. You're probably getting annoyed already. Well then, just vote. Stop apologising. We want prizes. I will. We want a prize. And you're going to help us out louders. There is a link in the show notes. Voting is still open for the Australian Podcast Awards listener's choice category. We want to take life uncut down. We are unashamed about that goal. So please go and vote for us. You get sent an email. You need to verify it. Sounds complicated. It will take you 23 seconds. We love you. Okay, bye. (laughs) I'm glad you did that spruik, Jesse Stevens. (laughs) On the show today, everybody's worried about Elon Musk being in charge of Twitter. So who's been fired? Who's been let back on? And what does it all mean? Plus, have we done away with social rules in favour of boundaries? And what is crying makeup? What the latest TikTok trend tells us about the cutification of mental illness. But first... All couples should be prioritising that they're both getting the best sleep that they can get because when you're well slept, you're a better partner. In case you missed it, King Charles and Queen Consort Camilla have three bedrooms between the two of them. Goals, couple goals. Because they are adherents to something called a sleep divorce, which is where you're very happily married, but you are committed to separate bedrooms. And in Charles and Camilla's case, they have a bedroom each and a marital bedroom for intimacy. Is this goals or is this the beginning (laughs) of the end? No, it's goals. I would do this except we only have one bedroom. My goal in terms of working hard and earning a salary is to have enough money to one day have a room where one of us can escape to. I think it is better for the quality of sleep. I always respect couples that talk about this. I reckon it is the key to longevity in long-term Because it's very hard to find someone over a long period of time, like years and decades, that you are in sync with, with temperature, with bedtime, light, yep. with bedtime, with TV on or off. I have to read under the blanket with my book light and it's not good for my eyes or my neck and apparently my night sweats then upset someone else. Like (laughs) I have to put the light brightness down on my phone. It's all just so irritating. Do you ever sleep sleep in separate beds? Sounds brilliant. When we've lived in other houses where we had a spare room, yes, but we don't have a spare room (gasps) now. But there are some nights where you're just like, I just want to be by myself tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you have an argument or if someone's sick. Yeah. How about you, Holly? No, I would never. I could never. Like, I've got lots of friends who have separate rooms and I respect it. But personally, I'm lazy and I need that forced Mm. togetherness. Otherwise, I'm too selfish and it would very easily just turn into flatmates. The fact that 
we go to bed together every night, even if it's not the same time or whatever. It like reminds you it, to have sex. Yeah, and it's just, well, not, not necessarily only that, but it's like it's a forced level of intimacy that you don't have. Mm. I don't think I'd be good at a sleep divorce. I think I'd be too selfish. But Charles and Camilla, it's obviously working for them. They've been together a very long time. Elon Musk has defended his decision to sack thousands of staff at Twitter without warning. He changed the title of his Twitter bio to Chief Twit. <laughs> then later, he barged into the social media giant headquarters, carrying a sink, tweeting, let that sink in. Reports from people inside the company say the first thing he did was fire several top executives, including the CEO, Parag Argwal, the CFO, and the head of the company's legal department. Well, Elon Musk bought Twitter for around 68 billion Australian dollars. Billion. Okay. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. And it's a garbage fire, which it already was, but now it's even more of a garbage fire. He's fired half the staff via email since he took over, which is thousands of people, including dozens here in Australia. He has had the CEO and the leadership team escorted from the premises at Twitter's US headquarters. So far, so chaos, but Elon loves chaos. It's what he does. It's what he lives for almost as much as he loves and lives for attention. And what better way to get unlimited amounts of chaos and attention than by buying one of the world's biggest social networks? Here's what you need to know about Twitter. It's big, but it's not nearly as popular as other social media platforms like TikTok or Facebook or Instagram or even Pinterest. It has around 300 million users globally, which sounds like a lot, but that includes all the people who just have accounts but don't use them. And that's a lot because only 10% of the users make up 90% of the tweets. Mm. So the people who are on Twitter tweet a lot. I used to be on Twitter and not anymore. I had about 150,000 followers, which I built up because I was there since early on. It started in 2006 and I probably arrived around 2007, 2008. And it used to be a really nice place. I've made lots of lifelong friends from those early days on Twitter. But I deleted my account years ago after one too many death threats and uh, bits of disgusting abuse. Jesse, Holly, are you still on it? Jesse, you're a lurker, aren't you? I'm a lurker. I never tweet. Why? Be because people are really mean on there. And the thing that has always surprised me about Twitter is that it's not randoms. It's not for me. It's not misogynists. It's people in your own industry. I cannot believe mm, there the are journalists. Yep, journalists, writers, comedians who I like until I see them on Twitter and I think I could never sit next to you at an event and have a chat to you because you seem like such a cruel person from what I see mm. on Twitter. It brings out this snark and this cruelty that is... And it's like a performative cruelty, isn't it? Yes. Paul, did you used to be on Twitter? I am on Twitter, but I never tweet. I'm like Jesse. I'm a lurker. So I jump onto Twitter when news is breaking, when I want to know what people are saying mm. about things, but I never tweet for all the same reasons. It actually scares the shit out of me. Why did Musk buy it, Mia, if it's not necessarily as powerful as it seems? Well, it is disproportionately powerful. And so even though it has less users than, say, Pinterest, you never hear people talking about Pinterest or even Facebook in the same way. And that is because a disproportionate amount of opinion leaders, journalists, media people, politicians, politicians yeah. are all on Twitter. So you would say it is the public square. Yeah, it's literally like the chattering elite, right? The chattering elite is on Twitter. And there's lots of different Twitters. Like there's journalist Twitter, there's 
book Twitter, there's black Twitter, there's many different types of Twitter where there are groups of people. There are kind of like micro communities on there. Correct, micro communities. And that was always the idea. But the thing is because there are so many anonymous accounts and so many bots, it's just rife with abuse because it's so easy to just abuse people. I don't understand is why because it felt like Elon, oh, why did he buy it? Why did he buy it? Because he put the offer and then he tried to renege. Yeah, like, because he realised, because he's like Donald Trump in the way that if you're performative, like you can say something on Twitter and get instant feedback. You'll get retweets, you'll get likes, you'll get, in the case of Elon and Trump, people will immediately report on whatever it is that you've yep. said. You know, in the olden days, celebrities or public figures would release a statement. Now they just release a tweet. Mm. He's got more followers on Twitter than almost anyone. I think he's got 120 million followers on Twitter. So that's an enormous, you know, source of power and that's an enormous microphone for him. So I think he sort of went, oh, I'm going to buy it because I think I can fix it. And, you know, he's got a very diverse range of business interests. He's got Tesla. He's got going to Mars. He's got the Boring Company, which is about boring into the earth. And now he's got one of the most influential, if not profitable, because Twitter has never made money. Twitter no, it's has been losing been, money correct, for years. Correct. And he had to borrow a lot of money to do this. So he owes just to pay back the debt, and he's got other investors as well that came in along with him, but he has to pay back a billion dollars a year in interest. Is that why everybody's freaking out about it? Because Elon has to turn this into a profit-making business very quickly. Is that why everybody's scared of what he's going to do? The reason that they're scared, it goes beyond the self-interest of, he said basically everybody that's got a blue verified tick is going to lose it after a certain date. I think in a couple of months, he's agreed to hold off until after the US midterm elections. And then he's going to charge $8 a month and anyone can get a blue verified tick, but you've got to pay for it. Now, that's not why people are scared because that's annoying and whatever, but that's still just not even going to make a dent in the amount of money that Twitter is losing. Elon himself has said that it's losing $4 million a day. The reason that he has bought it is that he says that he's this believer in free speech and he thinks Twitter has been taken over by the left and that there's censorship. Now, the problem is that Twitter, like every social media platform mostly doesn't charge its users, so far has never charged its users, the way it gets revenue is by charging advertisers to reach those users. Twitter already has some brand safety problems, let's Mm. just say. Mm. Since he took over, they've got a lot of moderators, you know, most of whom have been fired, a lot of people trying to moderate this content. You can imagine with hundreds of millions of tweets being sent every day, moderating that content is really challenging. And through COVID, we saw the amount of misinformation spread by people like Donald Trump spread as recently as last week by Elon Musk himself, who, as you discussed on the podcast, tweeted fake news about the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, which included a horrible homophobic slur about this idea that Paul Pelosi was not attacked by an anonymous intruder, that it was in fact a male sex worker. And he deleted it after a few hours, but it is the kind of example of how Twitter can be really, really dangerous. So that's why people are freaking out. Because if he says, I want free speech, that's hugely problematic because firstly, advertisers don't want to be near it. So, so many advertisers Mm. have already pulled their money. And he said, oh, it's because of pressure from left activists, woke people. And it's not. It's because, you know, for example, since he bought it, the use of the N-word on the platform skyrocketed in that first 24 hours by something like 12,000%. What's 
interesting is that these questions of freedom of speech, misinformation, how to make media profitable in an age where we have content saturation are subjects that we as people in the media but also we as a society have been grappling with for the last at least 15 years. Yeah. They are also some of the most complex, unanswerable questions that exist. I understand less and I have less of an opinion about what the answers are every day. He thought... I know how to fix this. I know how to make money. hubris. And I think once he's arrived and he's straight away realising, oh, this is harder than it looks because remember Twitter's in hundreds of countries, they all have their own laws. So in India, for Mm. example, they insist that Twitter have executives on the ground that they can basically arrest if anyone in India breaches the laws in India on that platform. And even just those ideas around who gets to decide what's on Twitter? You can't just, you know, this idea of free speech, it's easy to say in a tweet, but what does that mean? Yeah, and it's funny because he's banned parody, for example, which is one thing that has always been protected under satire, humour, all that kind of... It seems like in terms of the most worrying, you know, extent of freedom of speech, parody seems like the thing we shouldn't be too Mm. worried about. He also fired the human rights team. They had a human rights team that Mm -hmm. worked really, really hard to answer some complicated ethical questions and they have been fired. So I think people are scared about Musk as an individual because he's like an aberration. Like we can't quite. Well, he's like Donald Trump. I think he's less like Donald Trump. I think I understood Donald Trump more than I understand Elon Musk. I don't understand who he is, what he wants and what his end game is, but I felt like I could with Donald Trump. Here's my question. I think I've told you this before actually, but my daughter's history teacher has a cardboard cutout of Elon Musk in the yes. classroom. Yes. She told me that and I was a bit horrified and I was like, why? And she said, he wants us to realise that this is one of the most powerful people in history. Like as the mm-hmm. history of this century is written, this is one of the people who will have most impact on it. He's mm-hmm. not just a quirky dude who has too many children and who made his money by electric cars. And I actually think that's very, very savvy. As these businessmen, tech billionaires, have more and more and more power over the world, do we have any impact? Like, can we not just turn away from Twitter? Couldn't we all just turn away? Because I keep seeing people saying, I don't want to be on Twitter anymore now Elon <laughs> Musk is in charge. And then they're like, I'm just going to see what he's going to do. Yeah, yeah. And they're not going anywhere. And it's like, maybe we should take the power away from him. And that's what I think will happen. Either it's a usable, profitable platform or it isn't. And ultimately what Elon Musk cares about, as much as he talks about freedom of speech, it's the bottom line because he has to pay back a debt. So if it doesn't work for people, then Mm. I think we're going to see a lot of tinkering. He's come in and sort of gone, this has become about the elite and the powerful with their blue ticks, the journalists. And I'm like, isn't it funny that even Elon Musk thinks that he is an other to the powerful? But also that his antidote to that is charging everyone $8 a month. Yeah, yeah. Because who can afford to spend $8 a month to be able to tweet, which they're currently doing for free. There's a lot of talk about, oh, I'm going to leave Twitter, I'm going to leave Twitter in protest. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think there'll be a mass exodus now. But I think that what we'll see with the, you know, outbreak of even more lawlessness and Mm. trolling and abuse on that platform under the guise of free speech, I think more and more people will realise what I realised and many people have 
is that it just makes you feel bad when you're there. Like it's just not good for your mental health. You go there and it's just people being horrible, as you said, Jesse, and you walk away going, how did I benefit from that? And I think people will spend less and less time. So I think it's in a few months you'll see a big downturn in the number of users. If you want to know more about Elon Musk and Twitter and why anyone should care, listen to The Quickie. They had an episode today that's really good about whether or not he's going to let Donald Trump back on, the impact that might have. So today's episode of The Quickie is a really good way to understand why this is such a big deal. Hi guys, my name is Annie. I have actually just listened to your Monday episode on Mamma Mia Out Loud and I just thought it was hilarious hearing everyone talk about the birthday videos and I just wanted to share that we actually made one for my mum's birthday in COVID. Jessie actually had a little feature in it. I remember when we showed my mum, you know, it was all people that she knew and then Jessie Stevens popped onto the screen. My mum has always been such a fan of your show, so it was just the best surprise. Also went to the Saturday show in Sydney with my mum and sisters and we absolutely loved it. Bye. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. This boy and girl coming home from school look quite content with life. And why not? They're looking forward to an important date, dinner at home with the family. In the 1950s, when you sat down at a dinner table, it was very clear what was and what wasn't up for discussion. There was actually a really prescriptive etiquette film that was released in the 50s that clearly stated things like you couldn't discuss financial issues no long personal anecdotes, you weren't to mention unpleasant occurrences, I assume that's to do with, say, toilet humour, and no reference to disagreeable news. Napkins on the lap, the family awaits service. They converse pleasantly while Dad serves. I said pleasantly, for that is the keynote at dinnertime. It is not only good manners, but good sense. I'm not sure if I'm the only person sensing this, but today the boundaries around what you can and can't discuss in any social setting have become blurry. So you might discuss salary with your family, pregnancy loss in the workplace, your irregular periods with a bunch of new friends, and vibrators with your 13-year-old. It turns out I'm actually not the only one noticing this because Michael Waters wrote an article for The Atlantic this week and it's titled The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of Boundaries and he suggests that the two things are related. He says that for centuries there were very strict social norms that dictated what we could and couldn't talk about and that actually made it a lot easier and now we're constantly figuring it out for ourselves He says, today a disconcerting question seems to be on many people's minds. Do we know too much about those around us? There was a really interesting point in it that was made by an Australian named Jenny Kennedy. She's a researcher at RMIT. And she referred to a phenomenon called context leakage, which I really liked. 
And what that means is that we all have this idea, especially online, of who is viewing and consuming our content. But that perceived audience might be very different from the real audience. And we're inundated with very personal posts that probably weren't written for us and it can feel like a real intrusion. So you might log in hoping to see funny memes, but what you get is a total stranger disclosing their trauma. Mm. It made me think about how often we go online and we think, oh, I don't think I was meant to see that. I don't think that piece of content was meant for me. I can really relate to what you say sometimes if I go on TikTok and there'll be some TikTok trend of recounting your trauma. As I continued down my healing journey, I started to really realize that I had way more childhood trauma than I ever even thought I did. It's almost this flattening of everything into content and entertainment. I've certainly noticed it online that that element of of vulnerability or disclosure is seen as always necessarily a good thing, right? Mm. So we've pushed disclosure in response to these Victorian mores of repressed sexuality and never talking about our bodies and especially for women. It's been like shut up all the time. And now there's been this like incredible outpouring of just constant disclosure in every single context. And I wonder if that's actually good for us. Have you noticed this, Holly, being in particular situations or having people say things and you think, oh, is that appropriate now? God, yes. I was thinking about this today and I was thinking when I was 21, I travelled across America on a Greyhound bus, well, a couple of Greyhound buses. And what amazed me as an English person is whoever I'd sit next to on the bus would just like tell me stuff. They'd tell me about their divorce that had gone bad and how their mum had sided with their ex and now their kids lived in a house that had no plates because their dad only ever ordered from Maccas. Or they'd tell me about their cancer diagnosis and how it was back and the last time it stopped them from being able to have sex with their partner. And like, and I just remember sitting there being like, who tells strangers shit like that? And I thought, it's just Americans. <laughs> and now <laughs> it's absolutely everybody. We have all become oversharers on Dr. Phil, Jerry Springer, Ricky Lake. Like yeah. I think we've all, I feel like that started back when. And I know that it's a bit ironic for people like us to be talking about this in a way because one of the things that Mama Mia is built on is sharing stories and experiences. And the shortest route to connection with people is vulnerability and empathy and that feeling of me too. I don't mean hashtag me too. I mean, sharing something intimate that happened to you or upsetting and making people feel less alone. So it's a wonderful thing. We've broken down a lot of bullshit barriers and established there are universal truths and there's more that bonds us than doesn't. But in that quagmire of stuff, I do think all the time I look at people and think, I shouldn't know this about you. You know what I mean? I think that most people who are a brand on social media, and again, I would include us in that to some degree, we all have our own boundaries about what we will and won't talk and share about. They might not be immediately apparent to other people. So some people might think that, oh my God, you're sharing that, whereas we think that's fine, but we wouldn't share other things. Ultimately, you know, you're right about the idea that everything is content. There's a lot to fill up and we've realized that there's a lot of currency in shared experiences, but it's like, what do you ever keep private anymore? I keep thinking about what it must be like to be someone who's neurodiverse, who struggles with this anyway, because 
Hello. It's never been a harder time, <laughs> nice though. Nice to meet you. Like, I wonder if the 1950s would have been easier. No. For people who were neurodiverse, And though. that's what's funny because I feel like the world is catching up with the way I've always been. Yes. You know, I think it's no accident that I was drawn to women's media where it has been just by the nature of the subject matter, it's very intimate, personal stuff and it's vulnerable and it's about disclosure back from when I was working in magazines. And I always struggled even apart from my neurodiversity, although that's probably why, knowing when it was appropriate to talk. At work, I would talk about sealed sections, you know. I would mm. be writing about blowjob tips. That's was my job. And then I would struggle to understand that when I went out to dinner with some people that I didn't know very well, that that conversation was not appropriate. So it was always very confusing for me. And I reckon that online has made this more complicated because Mm. you know how we say read the room? You often get told to read the room. And let's say I'm in a client, a situation with clients. The things that are unconsciously going through your head, you go, I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to assume everyone votes the same. I'm probably not going to tell that period anecdote here. You're reading the room. That is impossible to do on the internet. Because you are in so many different rooms that you can't even imagine. And so I keep seeing this, like, say, content on TikTok that I think if you knew what was happening in my life right now, a friend wouldn't tell me that story. They would know that that story is Mm. upsetting or inappropriate. But our rooms are just so flattened. And in this article it said that we're seeing the rise of things like close friends on Instagram and kind of making those communities smaller. Because I was going to ask you, where are the boundaries that that was the other side of this? The boundaries. Do you remember years ago, there was a very viral comment that a woman made that was basically a blueprint for how to tell people that you can't take on their struggles right now? Oh, I love this and I've forgotten what it was. Yes. I can't remember the exact wording, but basically she had a blueprint for when someone comes to you with their problems, like if I disclose to you that I'm struggling with a mental illness and you would say, so sad for you. I don't have the scope to take that on right now. My emotional well is full. Get on with it, basically. And she was eaten alive for a number of reasons. But we keep talking about boundaries. Psychologists keep talking about boundaries. It's very popular. There's been books written. And it's saying this is in response to there being no written social etiquette anymore. So you need to define your own clearly every single day. You've got to say, I don't talk about this, I don't take this on. How do you? First of all, you can't really when you're on social media because you never know when you're going to get that Mm. traumatic video or that person sobbing because they just had to put their dog down or another person, you know, flashing their bum in your face. It's causing a lot of tension. I mean, as an example, I have a friend who recently was out and he is quite religious and someone kept saying, Jesus fucking Christ or something like that, Ooh, right? Yeah. Kept using that phrase. And he went, all right, I have a boundary. And he piped up and said, could you please stop using the Lord's name in vain? It makes me uncomfortable. And this person clearly felt that that was an unfair restriction on their speech and had a go at them and it blew the relationship up. So I think that that's why we're seeing a lot of tension because 50 years ago, that's just not something you would say. Like swearing to some people is still such a faux pas in yeah. a social situation. And then to others, 
it's something you do every second of every day. I know when that's appropriate and when that's not, right? You've got to still have some... Social awareness. Yeah, awareness of other people. Like I could tell if the way I'm talking about something makes someone uncomfortable. You could tell whether this is a room to be telling your period stories. Not online though, Hull. You can't because you've got thousands of people following you, 99% of whom you don't know. Even though there are people in my life who say, oh, my God, are you comfortable sharing all the things you share? I know that I have boundaries about what I'm sharing and what I'm not. Mm. I know that there are things that I will share and I won't. There are other people whose stories I'll share and I won't. I know what I've got the capacity to take on and what I haven't. I don't know. Again, I think sometimes we take the piss out of boundaries, but I think that actually they're really important in this particular instance to keep yourself sane and just not having everybody's shit pouring all over you all the time i shouldn't have said that i should not have said that i shouldn't have said that if you want to make out loud part of your routine five days a week we release segments on tuesdays and thursdays just for mamma mia subscribers to get full access follow the link in the show notes and a big thank you to all our current subscribers So this one is for the unstable girlies. I have never related to anything less than this makeup tutorial. I'm about to play you a little bit of it. You know how we look good when we cry? Just comes with the territory. Um, But anyway, if you're not in the mood to cry, here's how to get the look with makeup. Okay, so we want that puffy soft lip, right? We're going in with the soft spoken lip by M Cosmetics. Next, it's really a monochromatic moment. I'm going in with the double cheeked up palette by Fenty Beauty, over my eyes, under my eyes, on my cheeks, and of course my nose. Next, we're recreating that glisten in our eyes with some liquid glitter on the bottom lash line. So, yes, you heard that right if you're a bit confused about what you're listening to. We are now doing our makeup to make us look sad when we are not sad. So what you just heard was creator Zoe Kim Keneally, who's a makeup artist, and she made this video about how to look like a sad girl, how to look like you've been crying. And it has had 130 million views. Now, for the record, I look shit when I cry. <laughs> yeah, she lost me at the beginning when she said, you know how we all look really good when we're crying? Okay, I'm like, so I'm out. And I look shit the day after I've cried and mm. I'd rather die than let anyone know that I've been crying. So this video was not aimed at me. In defence of looking good when you cry, I will say I've had moments where I've looked in the mirror after I've cried and my eyes look quite pretty. because They're sparkly. Yeah, they're bit. sparkly. Because they're green, they look quite pretty and I think... Oh, I do look quite nice. I don't look Mm. nice from the eyes down. My mouth goes into a very ugly, and I'm not talking Mm. sobbing, but the odd tear. Zoe says the crying makeup look is like blush applied to your nose so it's a little bit red, glistens on your cheeks from the fake tears, puffy lips, puffy eyes, and it's part of a broader trend called sad baiting. So an article on Pop Sugar by Ruby Fennelly says, it seems that along with skinny bodies and skater skirts, 2022 has brought mental illness as main character energy back on the map. And many are saying that the crying makeup trend is a post-COVID cry for help from nihilistic Gen Z and millennials. Can somebody help me understand this? Jesse Stevens. Bella Hadid is what you need to know about this story. Bella Hadid at the end of last year posted photos of herself crying in different situations. And she didn't kickstart it, but she's part of this influencer celebrity trend of posting Five really glossy, incredible photos of you at 
Paris Fashion Week and you looking mm. hot on a beach and you with your hot boyfriend or whatever, every now and then it's like you go, oh, I've got to check the vulnerability box because right now I'm looking a bit unrelatable. Yeah. So what they'll do is... Performative vulnerability. Yes, it becomes performative vulnerability of just like, you know, my life, and the caption will read almost identical to this, my life might look good, <laughs> but I still feel anxiety and sadness. Here are 11 photos of me crying very prettily. Give me empathy. You are not alone. Everyone struggles, et cetera, et cetera. Do and men do this? No, but then men don't post. Yeah, true. This article by Ruby Fenley, which I really enjoyed, sort of talked about the commodification or the fetishization of female frailty, that idea that it somehow can be a way of achieving status, attention by looking frail and crying and how this is problematic because I thought this was a little bit far, but this idea of equating crying to mental illness, which I don't, sometimes you just have a cry. I don't know. I'm torn because the authenticity of saying, yeah, sometimes I cry, everybody cries. If you cry, it's not just you. I but think I that for a lot of people online, like Bella Hadid, it was about anxiety. And for a lot of people, it is drawn to mental health. And I think that it might be an attempt to externalize or physically depict something that is invisible. That's very true. Like I think that, you know how they talk about anxiety and depression as these invisible illnesses. And it's, I understand the desire to some extent, but at the same time, I knew what this author in, in the article was talking about. She used some great examples of Cassie from Euphoria. She talked about the Virgin Suicides. She talked about that uh, movie. That was a great movie. Serena. But I don't think that would have worked these days with what no. we know about suicide. At a very, very, very dark low point in my life where I was feeling so distressed, I took a photo of my face and it was puffy and I was crying and it was, I didn't post it, mm. but I wanted a record of it because I didn't know how else to capture the depths of what I was feeling. In terms of posting it though, do you think that crying is the only acceptable female emotion? We can't ever display anger. That's ugly. Oh, that's true. We can't. Well, because it's frailty. It's, it's about anger frailty. is about strength. You can display joy. I see a lot of that on my feed, a lot of joy. I think Jessie means the only acceptable negative emotion mm. because, mm. yeah, no one's, women can always be pretty and happy because that's very unthreatening and decorative. Yeah. But to be angry Anger is about energy and about being active and about being strong in some way. Do we also see something in crying that's almost infantile, that's almost yeah. childish that yeah. we like? Holly, what do you reckon? Oh, this is in the file of things I shouldn't know about you. I shouldn't know what you look like when you have an orgasm and I shouldn't mm. know what you look like when you're sobbing. Like I just shouldn't. It's just a boundary. <laughs> Back to the previous conversation, it is a boundary that only your closest <laughs> friends should be permitted behind. When I was really sick with COVID, I took pictures of my face and I did post some of them actually because mm. I was writing about having COVID. And I really <laughs> wanted to see if I looked as sick as I felt, like if those two yes. things matched, which I totally get. But ultimately, we need a dose of cynicism about this because we all just need content. Some days nothing happens. So have a little cry, take a picture of that, post so that. So true. And also, I don't think I'm supposed to say this, but I'm going to say it. I'm really tired of everybody's endless mental health struggles on social media. It's like, it's wonderful Mm. that we now live in a world 
where we question our reaction to other people's behavior because we consider now more, well, what were they going through when they did that, said that thing, whatever. Like, I think we're much more aware of that. But also it feels like everybody has to be telling you about their shit times all the time because they're afraid of looking too smug, too polished, too whatever. And there's a bit of me, and I know it's just stoic bullshit, but I'm just like, smile, brush your fucking hair, go to work. Now I know I'm Jordan Peterson, but I'm like, come on. I don't need to see your insides. You don't need to show me your insides. I'm quite happy with just seeing your outsides Mm. and showing your insides to the people who really care and can help you. So do we go back to Instagram just being this feed? See, that's not satisfying either, People jumping up at the beach smiling saying how lovely it is to have their 14 children and that doesn't how... make you feel good either yeah. I don't think it should be like that either but that's not reality either I just think we need to discover rediscover a bit of privacy that's what I think <laughs> I have a recommendation you guys ready you sound so proud Let's of yourself to push my buttons I have a really really good one I've been waiting and you guys haven't let me and now I'm ready It is a show. It is on Stan. It is a series. There are lots and lots of seasons, which I think old. No, it's Breaking Bad, which is (laughs) a fabulous show. Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. It's that's your recommendation. Brian Cranston in it. It's fifteen years Years old. old. It's fifteen years years old. Welcome. Yes, I have just started for the first time. Watching Breaking Bad, and may I say, brilliant show. What made you watch it? Because weirdly, my younger son has started watching it too. He's up to season three, and I watched an episode with him the other day. I didn't understand any of it because it was quite well into it. But why is it having another moment? I'm I am unimpressed by the current offering. All White the- Lotus is back. That's good. Yes, and I really want to watch mm. that. But a lot of shows, I start and I just go. No, we rushed it and I just don't like it. And so I thought, what's a classic I never watched? And I did this recently with Mad Men. Did you like Mad Men? Yeah, it was great. I was about to say, Jesse, while we're here, we should recommend Mad Men and West Wing and maybe The Sopranos. Oh, I haven't done West Wing. What about E.T.? Oh, my God. The West Wing is the best TV show. See, I think I'll be recommending that in six months. But at the moment, I'm watching (laughs) Breaking Bad. If you've never watched it, it's great it's just amazing television if you have watched it go watch it again is it very violent a little yes. bit it's a little bit mm. very violent it's um, one of those ones and is it very tense yeah it's pretty tense and violent yeah it's no. very yeah. tense okay yeah, so i couldn't violent. watch homeland can't watch breaking bad no, yeah. this it's very very good though jesse is right that it's very very good yeah it's the best writing of a character i reckon i've ever seen on television it's just brilliant breaking bad <laughs> I love your reco, Jesse Stevens. Speaking of writing, if you're looking for something to listen to, yesterday's subscriber episode of Mom and Me Are Out Loud is a bit of a doozy because Jesse Stevens, Sally Hepworth, and I talk about writing and money and whether or not Australian authors make any money, that is. It's really juicy. We all got a little bit poked by an old essay now by a writer who you've interviewed recently, Jessica Knoll, Mia, that said, I want to be rich and I'm not sorry. And she was talking about wanting and setting out to write a bestseller. So Jesse and Sal and I discuss whether or not it's considered kind of uncouth for writers to admit they want to be financially successful, whether or not many writers are financially successful and all of the things that go along with and it's very interesting if I say so myself. Oh, that sounds like a cracker. Thank you for listening to today's Mamma Mia Out Loud. The episode is produced by Emma Gillespie with audio production by Leah Porges and assistant production from Susanna Makin. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 
Bye. Bye. Big thanks to anyone listening who has become a Mamma Mia subscriber. Subscribers get access to every podcast, exclusive videos, and all the great articles on Mamma Mia. Subscriptions cost as little as $5.75 a month. There's a link in our show notes. Where were you when Kathy Freeman won gold for Australia? This is a famous victory, a magnificent performance. What a champion. When Taylor Harris stood up to online bullies. There is no time to dwell on it because the next punch is coming. (laughs) And if you don't get out of the way, you're going to get knocked out. Or when you heard Sharon Streslecki say this famous line. If you need anyone, if you need, if you need... My name's Hayley Willis and I'm a sports journalist, mum of two and all-round legend. (laughs) And my name's Kate Campbell. I'm a four-time Olympic swimmer, adventure seeker and often accidental daytime napper. We're the hosts of Here If You Need, Mamma Mia's first ever all-female sport podcast. We cover all women's sport with legends like Lauren Jackson. I just sort of said to myself, it can end at any moment and that would be okay. Sam Kirk. FIFA has such a massive reach. I think it's amazing that myself, a female, is on the cover. Ellie Cole. When I saw the Paralympics in 2004, I was like, right, this is awesome. There are people who look exactly like I do. Kath Cox. There's no boy sports anymore. That excites me knowing not just the progression the netball's taking, but the progression that women's sports take. And so many more. Each week, we'll be giving you a cheat sheet for sports chat on the weekend, a breakdown of the weekend results, information on where you can catch every game, an inspiring story from some legendary women, and of course, a laugh along with us. Here if you need, coming soon to your favourite podcast app. Because I run the-